This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I just spoke with Sally Smith-Hughes about her recent book, Genentech, The Beginnings of Biotech, that came out in 2011 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, this is a book that's very readable. It's got a very exciting and very engaging narrative of very compelling characters. It's a book that is going to be of obvious interest to anybody who enjoys reading about, either professionally or as an avocation, the history of um, modern biosciences, the modern life sciences and biotech in particular. But it's also got a lot to offer um, in terms of something that's not obvious from the title, and that is the craft of and the narrative possibilities of oral history. Hughes is very involved in a large oral history project, and those kinds of research methodologies very much shaped the way the book unfolds. They shaped the kind of story that emerges in a really interesting way. Now, this is a book that demonstrates, I think, very compellingly um, that the enormous success of Genentech was neither straightforward nor inevitable. In fact, the story was racked with problems, and it's very much a, a narrative about contingencies, human contingencies, political contingencies, economic contingencies, scientific contingencies, and so on and so forth. It's a story of a handful of people who figured out how to develop recombinant DNA technology, how to use it as an industrial process, how to build a business on it, and then how to make a profit from it. It's also the story about the emergence of a new kind of organism, really, that is the entrepreneurial biologist. It's a very compelling narrative. Uh, I had a great time talking with Sally about it, and I hope you enjoy. Hello. Carla, how are you? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. And we are together here today um, at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with to talk with each other. Um, so I'm here talking with Sally Smith-Hughes about her recent book, Genentech, The Beginnings of Biotech. Thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast, Sally, and thanks for making time to speak with me today. Well, I'm pleased to be given the opportunity. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, this is a book that was particularly exciting to me. It's not simply a biography of a, of a very important and crucial company in the history of science, although it does that kind of work, but it's also a significant contribution to the fields of legal history, in a way, to the history of biotech, to the history of also the growing and evolving relationships between academia and industry 
history in the history of the modern sciences, which incorporates really interesting transformations in some basic components of academic and intellectual work, as well as industrial work, including how we think about authorship, how we think about credit, how we think about intellectual property. So it's a very exciting book. It's extraordinarily clearly and elegantly written, and it really was a pleasure for me to read. So thank you, Sally. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> My pleasure. So could you start us off, as is um, traditional for our podcast, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to the field of the history of science, and in particular, the history of the modern life sciences? Well, my dissertation at the University of London um, was on the life sciences, um, specifically on um, the very early history of the rise of of virology, the um, identification of the virus as distinct from the bacterium. And um, once I graduated, um, I returned with my new husband to the United States and, of course, um, immediately began to look for colleagues in um, the history of science. Um, We landed in North Carolina. Um, My husband was teaching at the University of North Carolina. And... um, I essentially was raising three children, but taking um, courses at Duke and UNC, or actually not so much taking, but sitting in on courses um, in in that field, um, very kindly permitted to do so by um, two professors at, at each university. And turning my dissertation into um, my first book, which was on the concept of the virus. And after uh, a number of years in UNC, we returned to um, the West Coast, um, where I had originated. And um, by then, much as I loved my children, I was desperate to really get um, a firm hold um, professionally in the field and ended up at the Bancroft Library, in um, which is the research library at the University of California, Berkeley, um, in what had to be a very flexible um, position. Um, this is very much a woman's story uh, because my children were still very young, uh, some of them not even in school yet. And so the, it was the part-timeness um, as well as the intellectual stimulus that attracted me. And the job um, was essentially to do oral history, um, following up on work that had been done at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory um, by John Halbrun and Roger Hahn. Um, and they, they had gotten a grant from the NEH um, to do a follow-up on the biological application of the particles and um, um, radioisotopes that were being produced by Ernst Lawrence's um, cyclotron at a laboratory um, called Donner Laboratory. So that's how I cut my teeth on oral history. Before then, it um, was merely a word (laughs) to me. Um, And that was 1978. 
And if you had told me that 30-some years later I would still roughly be working in that same field, I would have been very surprised. And eventually the part-time position became a full-time position. Um, But oral history very much, oral history and the research that went into it, because I should hasten to say that the way oral history was and is done at the Bancroft Library is a very research-heavy field. We don't just walk in to an interview and um, start recording. We do the research to make sure that the the interview is in-depth and very often multiple interviews and on related topics. Well, because of my background, In fairly recent science, although my dissertation was um, focused on the period at the turn of the 19th and 20th century, when obviously I wasn't doing very many interviews, um, it it became focused on uh, fairly recent biomedicine, but mainly in, in in fact, almost exclusively exclusively in academia. Um, these were academic um, scientists in a variety of fields, but all some one way or another related to biomedicine. And then much later in the game, after I'd done um, a number of projects, including one of my very favorites, which, which was on um, the history of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, the very first years, um, which was a fascinating topic. Um, I talked with um, the leading scientists and um, physicians and, and university nurses uh, during the first three years when um, the virus was being identified and patients dying at a, a horrendous rate because, of course, we didn't have any therapies at that time. Um, that work I was doing um, under a joint project with UCSF. So sometime in the 1990s, um, I received an offer from um, the Department of History at UCSF to come over again on a joint appointment um, and interview some of their leading lights in molecular biology. And that, unbeknownst to me, was what got me on the track that eventually led to this book on Genentech. Um, the first person that I interviewed um, uh, was William Rudder, Bill Rudder, who was the chairman of the Department of Biochemistry at UCSF and given credit for moving the department and, in a sense, um, the whole university um, into the molecular field. And one of his colleagues was Herbert Boyer. So the second interview that I, or second interviews, these are all multiple interviews, was with Herbert Boyer. And as I implied, um, I had not been working on in, in any um, topic that related to commercialization or the industrialization. And all of a sudden, there it was um, right in front of me. Um, because not only was her Boyer, this was probably mid-90s, so 
Genentech, which was founded in 1976, was approximately 20 years old, and the biotech industry was formed, and people knew about the subject. So I, um, all of a sudden, began to learn with great interest about what goes into taking a very basic scientific invention, namely in this case recombinant DNA, and turning it into, in a multiple step process, into a commercial product, um, and obviously that involved forming a company. So maybe I should... um, backtrack a little bit and and tell you um, you know very briefly about the invention of recombinant DNA um, it is as many people know now um, the invention of her Boyer who at that point was um, an associate professor in the Department of microbiology at UCSF and um, Stanley Cohen. Stanley Norman Cohen, because there's another, believe it or not, (laughs) uh, scientist named Stanley Cohen. (laughs) This is Stanley Norman Cohen, and he was a professor um, in the Department of Medicine at UCSF, who was, I mean, at at Stanford, I'm sorry, um, who was working on plasmids. And the two men um, met at a conference in Hawaii in 1972 and telescoping a lot of preliminary science began to talk and to figure out that their mutual interests I mean Stans was um, in in plasmids as uh, as a way of studying um, antibiotic resistance and Herb's interest was in restriction enzymes which are um, bacterial enzymes that splice DNA, um, in some cases at very specific junctures. So again, um, saying it very simply, they agreed um, to collaborate when they got home, and they did a set of three different experiments um, which showed that one would could clip off um, selected pieces of DNA and introduce them into um, a bacterium using plasmids, plasmids as the vehicle. And plasmids are circles of DNA that are separate um, from uh, the, the main bacterial chromosome. And by the end of the, you know, the third experiment, which was performed in 1973, they showed um, that higher organism um, DNA, in this case, um, from the clawed frog called Xenopus, um, could indeed um, be spliced and um, successfully cloned, that is, reproduced in bacteria. And this was a surprising um, discovery because it was very much felt um, that the mechanisms for reproducing bacteria and um, the and higher organism DNA were 
are necessarily um, exclusive and distinct. Um, and no one had um, had done anything like this before. Mm-hmm. What was um, immediately apparent to to both Stan and Herb was that not only was this a boon for basic um, molecular bi- biological research, and indeed within a few years, um, molecular biology labs around the world were using their technique, but um, they also foresaw the industrial applications that indeed, if you could use this technique and actually express um, the clone genes, um, there was all, there were all kinds of um, possibilities, and because Herb and Stan were working in the biomedical field, they thought first and foremost of making specific drugs in bacteria with the idea that the drugs could be made in great quantity by reproducing the relevant gene as the bacteria divided and hopefully um, the the drugs such as insulin and growth hormone would be cheaper than those already being manufactured by other means, um, non-bacterial means by the pharmaceutical industry. Now, thank you. Maybe I'll just jump in here just to let listeners know. um, Now, Boyer and Cohen, or Herb Boyer and Stan Cohen, as you're mentioning, um, they may sound like sort of names right now, but the the first chapter does this really wonderful job in really introducing and elaborating their characters. I think you mentioned here that one reporter calls Boyer, who's actually quite different from Cohen in temperament and the way he looks, a Baroque angel in blue jeans, right? He's got yeah. he's got Siamese cats <laughs> named Watson and Crick. Um, uh, he just a really really interesting and it seems to me as a reader very exuberant personality versus Stan Cohen who although he played the banjo uh, so it was sort of interesting. Um, he you, um, you describe him as trim bearded balding and bespectacled just very very different temperaments. Um, and the first chapter I think does a really wonderful job um, introducing them as people right as human beings so that this really gives a lot of text to the story of what happens afterwards. Now, one of the things that I wanted to um, to ask you about before we kind of move on from Boyer and Cohen's research on recombinant DNA and plasmids and the way that gets taken up by um, as other characters enter this story and this, this company gets created, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about something that you mentioned um, very early on in our conversation, and that is the oral history project, the, the sort of the oral history component of the research methodology that went into the book. Now, I had the, the pleasure of going to the website that um, you mentioned in the beginning of the book that archives these oral histories, these interviews with um, many, many figures that show up in the book and, and many beyond. And it's a really amazing, incredible resource um, for anybody interested in the history of the modern sciences. Now, this is a very particular kind of uh, research methodology, and I'd love to hear a little bit about how the particular demands and rhythms and nature of oral history and of that kind of research shaped your project. What were these interviews like, and how did um, that 
kind of resource uh, to help shape the, the book as you wrote it, the way you decided to structure the book and structure the narrative and tell the story? Well, simply um, speaking, <laughs> it was the fact that I had this wonderful and, you know, pretty unique collection of oral histories, not only with the prime movers and shakers, namely um, Boyer and Cohen and later Swanson, um, but other people who um, directly um, impinged on the rise of modern molecular biology and its segue into into biotech. When I say that, I'm thinking of Arthur Kornberg and Paul Berg at... Um, at Stanford and Bill Rutter at UCSF, who went on to form Chiron Corporation, and so the the oral histories um, were definitely the inspiration. Um, but I knew all along that the um, that the oral histories alone would not be sufficient. Um, it, they, of course, give an immediacy because people are talking. Um, you know, they they almost inevitably begin to relive um, the history that that we're talking about, and of course, the personality signs shine through. And one of the my motives in writing this book was um, to dispel the calmly held idea um, by sort of the woman in the street that scientists tend to be colorless, um, you know, nose to the ground, um, you know, unapproachable people. Well, my experience is that is that they are anything but. They're as human as the rest of us. They have their ups and their downs. Um, their personalities often have, um, or I could say almost inevitably, have an impact on the decisions they made, uh, they make um, about the direction of their research. And I wanted the personality part of this complicated story to shine out. And that was where the oral histories came in, as well as providing a lot of information that would be difficult or impossible to find in other sources. And the way um, the way I have always done oral history is to try to read as much as time um, allows. And of course then there is um, the wonderful privilege of literally sitting at the knee of people who have actually done this work. And as a series of interviews on a given topic, say molecular biology goes on, of course there's a you know, tremendous um, learning curve. So in no way did I ever become close um, to having uh, the expertise that my subjects did. It was inevitable that I learned quite a bit about not only the science, but about the external factors that were, are so prevalent in this story, which is another reason that uh, 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 reason that I was so intrigued by um, uh, this 
process of commercializing a basic science, um, it may be time to go into the context in which this was done. Um, Although perhaps we should first get Genentech founded. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's found Genentech. <laughs> so as we move from the um, the story, and and I think as a reader, um, the the sense that comes out of the nature of the oral history sources, as you've described them, of reliving the history, is very present in the narrative of the book itself, and it, it's really really interesting and kind of wonderfully evocative um, in that way. So the next stage um, in this history as we move into chapter two, um, where we uh, come upon the creation of Genentech, involves um, the uh, entry into the story of another character, and that is Robert Swanson. So you've briefly um, mentioned him earlier, but can you um, introduce Robert Swanson for us and maybe say a little bit about um, the the role that he played in working with Boyer and ultimately um, creating Genentech? Yes. Um, well, Bob Swanson um, was um, an only child of working-class people who obviously was very bright and was admitted to MIT with the idea um, of going into chemistry. He was a chemistry major. Um, a summer job at a chemical company dissuaded him of the idea that he wanted to spend his professional life um, working for um, a, a chemical company. So using uh, a lot of his uh, entrepreneurialism, you could always already, I believe, see it um, as uh, when he was still an undergraduate, but he persuaded um, the powers that be at the Sloan at MIT Sloan School of Management to allow him um, to finish up his chemistry degree and at the same time enter the first year of business school, which he did. And making a complicated story short again, he became particularly interested in a course on entrepreneurship. And when he graduated, having um, and he has a, a a degree in both chemistry and in business, he um, became um, an employee, a young employee of Citibank, where he and some of his young colleagues were given the opportunity to invest um, a hunk of money um, in what essentially was risk investment, um, did very well, and within a few years was sent to the West Coast with a colleague to open up a, a branch of Citibank in the San Francisco Bay Area. Because by then, and this was early 70s, um, what was to become Silicon Valley did not yet have that name, um, was obviously, to anyone paying attention, um, a nexus for high-tech, particularly in the electronics and computers field. So Citibank was hoping to capitalize on investing in some of the new startups that were coming along. So uh, Swanson um, 
in, uh, became more and more in, engaged, and at the same time, um, somewhat dissatisfied that he was, uh, you know, um, an advisor and investor in these new startups. But what he decided he really wanted um, was to, to start his own company. Um, as the, the, the denouement after he left Citicorp and had been um, Citibank and had um, done a few other things, he joined um, what became the iconic um, venture capital firm of Kleiner Perkins. And in those days, it was just Kleiner Perkins and a junior partner. Um, within a few years, it became Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers, which um, anybody in the venture capital field knows is one of the major venture capital firms in in the world. Anyway, he um, Swanson worked there um, for a little bit more than a year, and one of the um, investments that he was to oversee was with a new company called Cetus Corporation, which was founded in 1971 in Emeryville, California, across the bay from San Francisco. And Cetus wasn't, in Kleiner and Perkins' eyes, doing very well. They had a very broad agenda, which really at that point had nothing to do with recombinant DNA. It was trying to capitalize on an invention invention by um, the Nobel laureate, um, Donald Glazer, which was an automated way of uh, picking out um, bacteria that were more productive of antibiotics. But um, in Kleiner and Perkins' eyes, the company was not sufficiently focused. So Swanson attempted to um, persuade the two co-founders of Cetus, um, Ronald Cape and Peter Farley, to take up um, recombinant DNA. But as Cape later said it in an, um, a long series of interviews with me, um, he was leery about what was happening in the wider society, which we have yet in this interview, in our interview, Carla, mm-hmm. to mention, which is the recombinant DNA controversy. Um, almost immediately after um, Cohen and um, Boyer had invented recombinant DNA and the scientific world became aware of its potential. Uh, simultaneously, um, people in both the scientific world and in the general public began to be concerned about the possible dangers of the technology. I mean, if you could manipulate bacteria, you could mani- maybe um, produce organisms that were harmful to the health and safety of the public. So within two years of the um, publication in 1973 um, of the seminal work of, uh, of Cohen and, and Boyer, 
the scientific community under um, the leadership of leading scientists such as Paul Berg and um, Baltimore organized um, the recombinant DNA um, conference at Asilomar in California with the hope of setting up um, federal guidelines for recombinant DNA research um, with the idea that under the guidelines the research could go forward. So this controversy, um, well, in, indeed, the government did set up uh, what are, were then called the NIH, NIH guidelines for recombinant DNA research, which were published at um, the end of 1976 and required um, all laboratories um, working with certain kinds of organisms that were thought to be potentially dangerous to abide by the guidelines, um, which there were, they're very complicated and there were many layers of regulations in the beginning, but they did such things as um, um, telling you which kinds of organisms you could use and which not, and what kind of laboratory conditions the research could go forward and so on. So this, um, this political controversy, political and social controversy, was going on at the very time that CETUS and eventually um, Genentech were trying to get off the ground. And Ron Cape in particular, the co-founder of CETUS, was leery um, of getting involved um, in a science which had so many political concerns associated with it. Plus, and equally important, if not more so, it wasn't at all clear at that time that recombinant DNA really could carry through and and make um, products that could be eventually marketed and um, made made profitable. So, uh, getting back to Swanson, um, those that was sort of the background why he was not successful in persuading Cape um, to take on recombinant DNA at that time. So there he was, and um, Kleiner and Perkins were beginning to be leery about this junior partner, Swanson, who didn't seem to be able to carry off his <laughs> almost, in retrospect, impossible assignment, and he was let go. So that at some point in the um, mid-'70s, he was without a job. He was living on Social Security, and he was madly interviewing with all kinds of Silicon Valley companies, but not happy with the opportunities. As he, he made some sort of a comment, I can't remember exactly, that his aim was not to join a company and make um, tennis shoes. <laughs> so he began to read um, because of the publicity that was even in um, standard newspapers about the looming recombinant DNA controversy about this new technology. And he became um, fascinated and thought that indeed it had commercial potential. 
so he took the initiative and began to call up um, the leading scientists, and apparently he got the names from the publicity that had surrounded um, the Asilomar conference. He called, um, it's not clear in what order he called people, but he eventually, and very early on, ended up calling Herb Boyer. Um, now, Herb, as I mentioned at the very beginning, um, and Stan had had seen the potential commercial applications of recombinant DNA, but being academics and also because of their respective personalities, um, had not done anything about it. Well, that's not quite true. Um, Boyer had made a stab. He had gone so far as to um, ask a a scientist in Germany to synthesize um, a gene, a small gene, that he was then going to try in his laboratory at UCSF to clone and see if he could express it as as a protein. Mm -hmm. Well, the German scientist, for whatever reason, failed to come up um, with a DNA segment, the synthetic DNA. This is DNA that um, is totally constructed by chemical means in a test tube. And so uh, Boyer went back um, to his work in the laboratory, when it, which in itself was uh, totally preoccupying because he was, um, his laboratory was one of the sources, was one of the only sources in the early days where you could get um, the E. coli bacteria and the plasmids that were necessary to perform the mm-hmm. DNA technology. So now, flashing a, a year or so ahead, um, out of the blue, Boyer received a phone call from this unknown young man named Bob Swanson. And Boyer, who was very busy, um, was finally persuaded to see this young man who said he thought he could, that a company could be founded on the basis of recombinant DNA. Well, Boyer kind of poo-pooed it. He said, all right, I'll give you a few minutes on a Friday afternoon. And in the back of his mind all along was, well, I'll I'll see this young man, but um, I'll try to get rid of him as fast as possible. So Boyer arrived and created quite a stir because um, he was dressed in a three-piece suit. Uh, He looked very much like an alien to a very casually dressed um, scientist. (laughs) And he appeared in um, Boyer's laboratory, and the two talked. And gradually, as as Swanson talked, he persuaded uh, Boyer that he knew about forming companies, that he knew about raising capital, that that's what he had been doing for the last few years. And Boyer became more and more intrigued. 
um, they adjourned to a nearby tavern, and what had been, in Boyer's mind, a very brief meeting turned out to be three hours' worth. And the upshot of, of it was that they agreed to form a partnership to investigate the possibilities of recombinant DNA um, through experimentation. And um, Boyer gave Swanson the assignment to figure out which gene, which eventual hope-for product um, they should go for. So that um, was the very start of their collaboration. Boyer pretty much um, went back to his academic um, position. He never intended to be to give up his position at UCSF, and Swanson was left with the task of raising the capital and you know, beginning in finding um, a laboratory space. Boyer had. Um, scientists in mind, the people in his own laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the capitalization, uh, Swanson went back to his old bosses, Kleiner and Perkins, and with considerable effort, <laughs> persuaded them that recombinant DNA could be a going thing. And the upshot of that was, I think, 200000 as I remember, mm-hmm. of Money. Well, Sally, if I can sort of jump in here, because one of the things um, that you're raising here is a theme that goes on um, to become crucial in all of the chapters um, in the book. Now, we won't have time um, in our remaining time to you know to go through all of the elements of the, the narrative as it unfolds, but certainly one of the things that's crucial in every single one of these chapters is a point that builds on this collaboration you're describing between Swanson um, and Boyd and the nature of their respective contributions. And that is um, the sort of understanding Genentech, as you describe it in a later chapter, as a kind of recombinant culture um, of a hybrid of academic values and commercial objectives. And certainly as we move through the book and and, um, move through especially chapter three, one of the things that we see is that the people coming into this story, so the other characters, the other um, scientists who are brought into this and other companies and representatives of companies who are brought into this collective to do this work are, are having to negotiate the different demands and the different kinds of both personal, epistemic, um, and sort of the economic interests of these two realms that they're straddling in this company, the academic and the sort of the privately funded corporate research world. Now, this be, this creates tensions on on many levels, and one of the things that that happens later on in this story revolves around um, sort of what happens with the products that come out of Genentech, out of this company. Because in fact, as you're mentioning, this is a commercial company, but it's also a company that is uh, devoted to creating um, products that are that come from basic science, right? So this is something that I'd actually love for you to talk 
talk a little bit about. Um, in particular, as uh, Genentech, and certainly in the next chapter and the chapter after, is starting to prove itself by developing um, uh, these new technologies that are uh, based on the synthesis of first somatostatin, a kind of hormone, then insulin, and we'd look at human growth hormone, issues of authorship and credit emerge. Life scientists at this time, as you're telling us, and, and life scientists made up the, the bulk of the, um, the scientists working for Genentech, are working in an academic culture that really didn't emphasize patents and intellectual property protection. And at the same time, the kind of negotiation of um, credit and authorship on a patent was very different from what they were used to um, in negotiating credit for scientific publications. So can you talk for a little bit about that um, that tension as it shapes this story, especially because this is something that um, seems to be to be a recurring theme and a very important point that recurs throughout the chapters of the book and the stages of this narrative? Well, um, intellectual property, of course, is, is basic to the success of Genentech and <laughs> arguably any um, startup company. And it was a foreign field um, to almost all um, academic scientists, including Boyer. Um, you know, Swanson, of course, had to be um, up to date with the importance of, of intellectual patent property and in um, as as manifested in patents. And one of the first things that he did, and um, this is another strand that needs to be woven into this story, is that Stanford and UC, at the time that Genentech was um, getting off the ground, were in a furious um, uh, set of negotiations with the federal government um, and with their own scientists about patent taking out a patent on recombinant DNA uh, uh, procedure. And the, that whole um, effort was extremely controversial, uh, first of all, because um, opponents saw um, recombinant DNA as, as a product of uh, basic federally supported science. And here were two universities trying to privatize and um, profit from um, basic science. And then it run, ran up against what we've already talked about, the recombinant DNA controversy. Um, you know, here were scientists, um, you know, trying to expand um, the breadth of recombinant DNA into the industry field where um, there was even less oversight. So it was a very controversial thing to be doing. And one of Swanson's first activities was to go over to Stanford and talk to the very enterprising head of Stanford's Office of Technology Licensing and try to um, get an exclusive license on um, using the patent uh, for the production of pharmaceuticals in bacteria. And um, Niels Reimers, his name is, um, refused. Uh, they had not yet gotten the patent. They hadn't figured out the licensing arrangement. 
he and his uh, superiors at Stanford were very aware of having to tiptoe through this minefield of the political controversy and at the same time try to benefit from what was increasingly uh, prophesied to be a very lucrative patent. <laughs> they were certainly right about that. I think it's been surpassed now, but um, the recombinant DNA um, patent, which Stanford and um, UC eventually won in 1980, became for a time the most lucrative patent um, in in the country. So there was that tension too, but in terms of um, Genentech's own work, um, the he. He Swanson knew that you know patenting was going to be a huge part of it, uh, not only to protect um, from infringement, but also for a young company to have um, a portfolio of patents is another selling point. Um, so it's, as soon as the research began, he. Uh, Swanson began to look around um, for a patent attorney and hired Tom Kiley, who um, became a very aggressive um, um, pursuer of of patents for for Genentech. But you're absolutely right that intellectual property um, is one of the cornerstones. Still, it still very much is, and of course causes, <laughs> you know, practically ceaseless litigation, including at Genentech. Um, I touch on the future um, litigation that arises from both the insulin and um, the growth hormone work. But it's such a huge subject and, you know, a very rich area for for further work. Um, but it's very interesting to me anyway that it was this very fundamental early work of Genentech that gave rise to such um, incredible patent um, battles in beginning in, in, well, as early as um, the late 1980s and well into the 90s. And the book even, I mean, even in the last chapter um, before the epilogue, you mentioned this landmark case um, for historians of science, certainly who are interested in the relationship between modern science and industry and the law of the, the Diamond versus Chakrabarty case, right, about this, which hinges on the issue of uh, whether a living being can be patented and sort of ultimately is resolved um, by the Supreme Court, who argues that any Anything under the sun made by man is patentable subject matter. So this is this is a really this is a story with very important ramifications, and the ramifications that I think we're still um, even after um, Genentech has has now been sold to another company um, dealing with. Now. As the story unfolds and the Genentech has a series of successes with increasingly more difficult um, objects or increasingly more difficult materials in an increasingly competitive environment, um, we come to this uh, the case which is uh, Chapter Five, um, which is sort of the Chapter Five is centered on, which is the case of human growth hormone. Um, this is an attractive goal for many reasons for Genentech. Um, and it brings out also 
um, an issue here that you touched on um, when really describing your own trajectory in this field on some level, but it's also something that emerges implicitly, but but here really explicitly in the nature of this story. And that is um, the importance of a kind of gendered element to this story. Um, you mentioned very explicitly that uh, these were all men who were talking about, and this was a very masculine culture at Genentech. In fact, um, I think you mentioned somebody referred to it as Macho City. How? <laughs> I mean, this seems to be an, an important contribution, certainly for people interested in um, issues of gender and science. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of this story um, and its importance to the way you see this narrative and, and the book developing? Well, it was men. It, I think the first there are um, there are female lab techs that come in pretty early in the game, but my memory is the first female scientists don't come to Genentech until the very late 70s. And remember, this is a, also it's not only a, a man's game, but it's a young man's game. And we're talking about the 70s when some of the sensibilities that we have now <laughs> were only beginning to appear. And it was a rough and ready, um, very intense, very masculine, um, very competitive uh, because what we haven't brought in to this story is the fact that there were um, races going on um, with academic scientists at Harvard and at UCSF who were going after the same genes. And it, it seems to me a very, um, if, uh, you, you know, the, the culture that was beginning to form and the very circumstance of this very young company with its very young and almost exclusively male um, protagonists uh, had, a, you know, it manifested a very male and aggressive and not particularly um, welcoming culture um, for women. And, you know, some of the early women scientists talk about that. Um, you know, I think I quote from Jane Gitcher in the book, and there are also... Um, there's an interview with the one and only um, uh, woman scientist that I interviewed at Genentech, and that certainly was not deliberate on my part to limit the um, the interviews to only one woman. It was simply the fact that since I was focused on the very early years of Genentech, there just weren't women scientists. Um, so, you know, I think all that... Um, has very much changed as Genentech has evolved and, you know, evolved and um, the times have changed now. It would not be acceptable um, to have the culture at Genentech. But, you know, it's kind of a catch-22, though, because some of Genentech's early success is doubtless due to this very intense work, ec work ethic um, and, you know, the aggressiveness with which they pursued their goals. So it'd be interesting um, to think about if Genentech had been formed 20 years later, um, what the culture would have been, and would it have led to the immediate cloning successes, because it was 
you know, every year in those first years, um, beginning with the cloning of somatostatin, and then insulin, and then um, the growth hormone, uh, they had a spectacular success one year after another. And in fact, one of the um, one of the really interesting things about the story is that as you're talking about characters who are getting involved in this company who have a choice, right? They're they're often deciding to leave some kind of an academic position in order to take up um, a position at this company that uh, you know we may not understand this um, from our position now, but your book shows very elegantly was very much um, not proven. It was very much a risk, and one of the things that you show here um, is that more and more, um, as the time goes on, these very talented academics are drawn into Genentech, this sort of unproven, very risky venture, um, over and over again, citing, if I'm remembering correctly, the the attraction of the science itself, the sort of opportunity to work intensively on the science without distractions, without having to work um, or to worry constantly about funding. Whereas at the same time, you're talking about people who seem to be giving um, really all of themselves to this work. As you're mentioning, they're they're competing um, for funding with other teams, with other labs. They're often giving up their personal lives or, or home lives in order to do this, working around the clock. Um, and this creates a kind of culture that's actually, that's really interesting actually here to, to read about. Well, it took over their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, I think... First, the attraction was the science itself. Those that had been doing it in academic labs were, and eventually, more not so eventually, but very quickly moved to Genentech, were totally enraptured with the idea of the science itself and the added possibility that it could be made practical and useful to society. That, indeed, was a theme that had been running through molecular biology in particular, um, you know, um, a person as, as eminent as Watson um, had written about how molecular biology needed to show that it was not just an academic en- enterprise, that it could lead to practical um, benefits for society. And indeed, that is um, one of the tenets of NIH funding, that yes, um, you do basic science, but the eventual hope is that it will have practical um, implications for society. So when recombinant DNA came along, you know, many of the scientists, you know, sighed a sigh of relief and said, well, at last we've got something that has real commercial potential, where there have been very little of that in biology itself um, before then. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was very much a magnet for, for many of the scientists. And remember, they were young, too. You know, they told me that, yes, it was a science, but they, um, many of them didn't have families yet. It was some of them had came with the idea, well, I'll try this. If it doesn't work out, I'll, you know, I'll go back to academia and, um, or I'll try something new. But it was the science um, almost to a man, and I say that um, because they were men mm-hmm. <laughs> um, exclusively, that, that drew them to Genentech. 
Well, Sally, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I just want to um, mention for listeners, although I won't, um, in order to respect your time, I won't ask you to talk um, in detail about this, but I'll mention that the, the book closes with the chapter that sees us through not only a shift in the broader cultural and national environment away from these early concerns with the um, consequences and ethics of recombinant DNA and toward an interest in exploiting these commercial and industrial opportunities that we've been talking about. And also, um, it takes us through the story of the ways that Genentech managed the initial public offering of the stock on Wall Street and, and ultimately resulted in the fastest, as you as you put it in the book, first day gain in Wall Street history. So it's a very interesting um, closer um, of this story and, and leads us through um, all the way to a very recently. So Sally, there's a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and it's it's an extraordinarily rich narrative. Um, there's a lot of really compelling characterizations in addition to being, I think, a really fascinating example of the kinds of stories that you can tell using oral histories um, as a, a major and a very valuable resource. Is there anything in particular about the book or about the project more generally that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, especially? especially perhaps listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book. Well, um, what one of my um, motivating um, forces in, in writing this book was to keep it simple and, and uh, in the sense that you didn't have to have a technical background to read it. Um, I feel very strongly that as our society becomes more and more science and tech-based, um, that there's an appalling gap between um, the woman in the street and what's happening in the scientific field. And, and of course, one book, and certainly not mine in particular, is it has any hope of you know closing that gap. I, I still felt strongly that by making um, writing a book that featured people in you know doing exciting things was possibly a draw um, to the general reader, and that I wanted to make the story exciting, and I've generally felt that it is exciting. I mean, as I tried to explain, I was drawn into this whole field kind of unwittingly, and it was really the excitement and the issues that, you know, commercializing a new science brought up that I thought was very intriguing and perhaps um, helpful um, in explaining at a at a introductory level, what biotech is and what this industry that we um, that is so prominent in recent science today is all about. I mean, much much more needs to be done. We need more people working on um, the, the the basic science of um, that goes into biotech, but also in um, looking. Um, at the history of the new companies that co that are coming up, because I think an informed society is absolutely critical in the 21st century about what's happening, not just in biotech, of course, but 
that happens to be my field of interest. <laughs> so much more, I think, could be said, but that, that certainly was a motive, and that's one reason that I kept it short, and I hope um, readers find it snappy. <laughs> well, I certainly did. So at least one reader, <laughs> you have evidence um, that I, it, it's, it's very fluid, and I think the story is very exciting as well. So I, you certainly accomplished that. So now that this book is out, what's next for you? Are, is there a particular project or projects that um, are inspiring you right now? Well, I'm um, because venture capital is such a, uh, a large part of the financing of the biotech industry, I, I have been um, doing a series of interviews on, on venture capital, not necessarily exclusively on, on biotech, um, but for somebody who really, in the beginning, didn't have a financial bent at all, as I said, I, I came out of the history of recent biomedical science, I actually find this interface between the economic and financial background and the conduct of, um, of, of uh, commercial science um, very intriguing and the people who are pursuing it. <laughs> so that's what I'm thinking about nowadays. Well, Sally, thank you so much for making the time. It's really been a pleasure, and congratulations on the book. Well, I was I am very pleased to have had the time to talk about it, and I thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for being with us today, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next time.